Well, I'm also honored this morning to uh, invite a special guest with us this morning, Dr. Jason Varner. Jason, do you want to come forward? If you knew him, you would clap more. Uh, Jason is a friend of mine, a professor at uh, Anderson University. We've worked together some in the last couple of years. Um, Jason is a friend of the Vineyard Movement when he was doing his PhD in Aberdeen, St. Andrews. Um, he was connected to a vineyard church there, and then we got connected as he came here a couple of times. And uh, one thing I know about Jason is that the authenticity of the vineyard is something that he holds deep in his heart. That sort of wanting to be the true self before God, Jason carries that into everything that he does. So I'm thrilled to have him come and uh, speak to us, give us the good news, and can I pray for you? Yeah, man. Okay. Thank you. God, thank you for Jason. Thank you for um, the heart after your own heart that you've put within him. We ask now that you fill him again with the Holy Spirit and let him release to us the very words of God, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Bring your kingdom now as he speaks. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Thanks, Randy. I appreciate that introduction. Um, when I was in Scotland working on my degrees, Randy said, uh, I came across a vineyard church and it, it changed my life. Um, it encouraged me at a time when uh, I'd been a Christian, I was called, I was dry, I was wrung out. I didn't see uh, a whole lot of point to the, the circus that, that is church sometimes. Um, I'll be real by the way, I'll just say that right now, and, and yet I found that uh, there's power in the presence of God more than enough. It encouraged me at a time, and I'm so thrilled to be back among Vineyard family, uh, hopefully to return the favor. I want to encourage you today. Uh, I'm going to be uh, launching off of a text. Um, it's a story, actually, of, of uh, Elisha, the prophet. And I'm going to launch there, and then we'll, we'll go into some other things. But it says this, uh, the story of Elisha. Time after time, when the king of Syria was at war against the Israelites, he met with his officers and announced, I've decided where we will set up camp. Each time, though, Elisha would send this warning to the king of Israel, don't go near there. That's where the Syrian troops have set up camp. So the king would warn the Israelite troops in the place to be on guard. And the king of Syria was furious when he found out what was happening. He called in his officers and said, hey, which one of you knuckleheads has been telling the king of Israel our plans? Well, none of us, your majesty, one of them answered. It's an Israelite named Elisha. He's a prophet, so he can tell his king anything, everything, even that which you say in your own room. Well, find out where that guy is. The king ordered, I'll send soldiers to bring him here. And they learned that Elisha was in a little town called Dothan and reported this to the king. And the king ordered his best troops to go there with horses and chariots. And they marched out during the night and surrounded the town. And when Elisha's servant got up the next morning, he saw that the Syrian troops had the town surrounded and ran into Elisha and said, Sir, what are we going to do? Don't be afraid, Elisha answered. There are more troops on our side than on theirs. And then he prayed, Lord, please help him see. And the Lord let the servant see that the hill was covered with fiery horses and flaming chariots all around Elisha. Father, this morning, may the seed of the word take root. 
Father, would you uh, till up the soil of hearts now, or that we might bear fruit from your word. Today I'm going to tell you three stories. Two are from scripture and have to do with one place, Dothan. And one is from church history. I'm a professor of church history, so I couldn't help but slide that in. It's in my contract. So uh, you'll have to enjoy that with me. But I think there's some power there. But I want to come at you straight from the beginning. No gimmicks or surprises. Let me give away the message. Here it is. With the pit comes the presence. And with the presence, there is possibility. Now, they've still given me a little bit more time, so I'm going to use it. Let me get to the stories. You see, the scripture I read talked about Dothan. That's actually the second time in scripture Dothan's mentioned. But the first time is probably a little bit more popular. If you've seen any Disney movies, you've probably seen this one. Or maybe you're a Broadway play person. You've seen Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Or maybe, you know, maybe you've never heard of Joseph. That's fine. I'm going to tell you the story. Essentially, this is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. And here's how it goes, at least the first part of his story. A man named Jacob had 12 sons, but one of them was his favorite. Now, this was the oldest son of his favorite wife, the one he was in love with. He had 10 older sons with his first wife, but his second wife he had more favor for. And so the the oldest son of his second wife became the apple of his eye. Now, The 10 older sons weren't exactly amused by this. But Joseph got to kind of hang around the house and play and take it easy. He got the best clothes. He got the best stuff. He got the best food. Meanwhile, the 10 older boys had to do all the work. I'm an older child. Some of you are. You know exactly how this works. I'm out mowing the lawn. My brother's not old enough yet, you know, and so I'm doing the work. But in, in chapter 37 of Genesis... Verse 12, we start to see that there's a problem in the family business. Now, their family business is sheep herding. Probably not a lot of sheep herders here today. But they were having trouble. You see, the grass had run out around the hill where they stayed. And so so, uh, essentially Jacob, Joseph's father, Jacob sends out the ten oldest sons and says, we got to find more grass for our sheep. This is a business problem. And so he sends the, the boys up to a place called Shechem. It's a town to the north. It's 50 miles north. There are no trains, no cars. There's no way to get the sheep up there other than to walk. So 50 miles is a a bit of a haul, all right? But the boys, all 10 of them, they march up to Shechem. Unfortunately, when they get there, they realize Shechem had been picked over. Other shepherds had heard the word. There was grass growing, and it was gone. And so they had to go another 15 miles north, up into the hills, the middle of nowhere, to a little place called Dothan. They're gone a long time. And Jacob's at home with Joseph and Joseph's other brother that stayed behind. And they don't have word. They don't know where the sheep are. And these aren't aren't just like pets. This is their family business. It's up in the air, and they're not sure where they are. No words come back. You'd expect with Shechem being a decent-sized town that some passing traveler might come by there and then march on down and say to, uh, to Jacob as they're passing by, hey, I saw your boys. They're out with the sheep. Man, those sheep look fat. And Jacob could, you know, say, awesome. But no, no word. It's like the flock disappeared. Little did he know they'd gone up into the hills north of town into Dothan. So, Jacob gets a little antsy. And so he does something he doesn't want to do. He goes all in on the family business and he sends his favorite son 50 miles north by himself 
to figure out what happened to the family business. This is going all in. And the Bible says that Joseph makes it up to Shechem and wanders around the area, but he can't find his brothers. And finally, a stranger there thankfully has pity on him and says, hey, you look a lot like some people that just passed through here. Are you looking for your brothers? And he says, yeah. Your brothers went north to pursue the green grass. And Joseph, not knowing what to do, I either go home 50 miles and tell my dad the brothers are farther away, or he takes the responsibility as a young child. You know, he thinks I'm a grown man, and he goes, he's still a kid, he goes north into the hills looking for his brothers. What's 15 more miles into the wild? And so he sets off and finally finds his brothers out in the middle of nowhere, as far from the father as they can get while staying in their homeland. Now, these ten older brothers don't care much for their younger brother. They've seen him pampered, and this is the first time they've seen him away from the father. And they're kind of sick of him. And some of them actually want to kill Joseph. But that's a bit much even for them. And they eventually settle on throwing him into a pit they dig in Dothan. Just to teach him a lesson. Have you ever stopped to think about what Joseph must have felt like in that pit? He's had dreams and visions of great possibility. His whole life has been one of opportunity and possibility and privilege. And yet now he's trapped, hemmed in on all sides by hard-packed clay. And I can imagine him trying every little crack, every little ledge in the pit. I bet he scrambled and scratched to try to get out until his fingers bled. I'm sure he begged his brothers to let him out. I'm sure he worked every angle he could promising his brothers this or that if they would only let him go. But in the end, he was left at the bottom of the pit, cold and bleeding and alone. And Joseph knew the pain of the pit. I imagine there are people in this room today who know the pain of the pit. If you've seen the movie or the play, you know what happens next. Some traders pass by on their way to Egypt, and the brothers hit on a win-win scenario. And in selling Joseph into slavery, they find a way to get rid of their problem, and they make a few bucks that they can spend on the way home in Shechem. This is a brutal story. Bible stories, just, they're so, when you think about the, uh, the felt boards and things, Bible stories are uh, uh, sanitized so often, but this is nasty stuff. It's brutal. The pit brought with it a pain that few of us could imagine to be trafficked by your own family, to be betrayed, to be objectified, to go from being a person to property. That is the pain of the pit. And yet as the story moves forward, just two verses into the next chapter, and this is crucial, we read this. And the Lord was with Joseph. Do you know that this is the first time in Scripture that the Bible says the Lord was with Joseph? He'd had dreams. He's had word of knowledge. He's been favored. And yet it never says the Lord was with him. You see, the presence came with the pit. With the pit came unimaginable pain. But with the pain of the pit came the presence. And most of you will know the end of this story. Possibility followed. With the presence came possibility beyond anything Joseph 
could have imagined. That's story number one. The second story today, I guess I suppose I didn't give you the citation uh, from the first, the scripture I read, that's from 2 Kings. It involves Elisha, and you heard the story, but let me kind of give you the cliff notes again. The Israelites and their neighbors are at war with people to the northeast, and the, the Israelites are not exactly a force at this time. They're counting on prophecy to keep them alive, essentially. They don't have a huge army. Elisha's an important figure. And he is the major prophet in Israel at the time of the story. He's a bit of a legend. God works through him in remarkable ways. And in the story, we learn that Elisha is kind of cracking the code. He's keeping the military of Israel alive and in the field. But the king of the Syrians realizes that Elisha is exposed near the border in a little place called Dothan. By the way, it's still backwater. In fact, if you've got sheep and you need food to find, you go there because ain't nobody in Dothan. And so that's where Elisha goes, probably on some kind of spiritual retreat, I'm not sure. But he went there with his servant and, and probably a few soldiers, we're not sure. But the king of Syria decides to strike. He sends a large force out in the middle of the night. They cross the border into Israel and they go and surround this little village where Elisha is rumored to have set up his camp. Dothan. The place of the pit. Now in the Bible, Dothan's only mentioned one other time. And it's in the story of Joseph. I, I, I think that's, perhaps that's coincidence, but, but I wonder if that's intentional. When you hear Dothan, you need to think about the pit. Some of you this morning know what it's like to live in Dothan. Your address might say Indianapolis, but you know where your real hometown is. The Syrian army surrounds the little village and they wait until dawn. Well, that, as a history person, that's important. You see, dawn's the best time to attack for a couple of reasons. One, nobody has wristwatches. It's hard to coordinate an attack in the middle of the dark. You say, hey, around 437, let's go for it. And everyone, is it time? Is it time? No. You wait for dawn because that's a clear sign and everyone can come together. It's a coordinated attack. But if you're attacking from the east, as we know the Syrians were, this is... This is this is, we can infer from where they came from in terms of crossing the border. They're coming from the east. You know anything about military history? Battles are fought this way a lot where the invading army situates themselves to the east so that as they come up with the sun, the defenders are blinded. Now, I have not been up that early in ages. I don't know what it's like, but I've heard that that angle coming over the horizon disorients you. Try shooting arrows at a, at a, a host coming at you when you can't see anything but blind spots. Important. So they wait to dawn, and they're crouching down at the edge of the village. And that's about the time that Elisha's servant, I'm just going to assume he drank too much water after 6 p.m., and his bladder was full. And in the gray hours of the morning, he thought, well, I better go. He doesn't want to. He's in a tent. You know, you ever camped, you know it's kind of a battle. Can I make it? Can I not? But he went out, he found his favorite tree. And as he's heading for the tree, he sees in the shadowy gray a host of soldiers crouched down. He makes out their outlines. How, how spooked would you have been? He forgot very quickly about his bladder. Presum maybe it, it unleashed into him. I don't know. But he was so scared, he turned right around and ran back into the tent and said, Elisha, we are undone. We are in trouble. Again, the sterilization of Scripture. But here's what the text I read said. Sir, what are we going to do? There's no way he said, sir, what are we going to do? 
Another translation, the NASB, has it this way. I think this is a little bit more honest. This is hopeless, my master. What are we to do? Another one, the New Living Translation, says it like this. It is bad, sir. What should we do? This is the second time a man has found himself in the pit at Dothan. This time not hemmed in by clay, but by soldiers more powerful than him. What do we do? I don't blame him at all. The fact is this servant knows he's trapped. There's no way out. For the second time in scripture, Dothan has become the place of the pit. But Elisha sees the panic in his servant, and and he doesn't look worried at all. By the way, how annoying is it to be around a person when you're freaking out, and they're like, it's all good? You're like, yeah, okay. I'll remind you of that next time you're in the pit, right? But but Elisha's, it's fine. The reason being, though, Elisha can see things that the servant cannot. Elisha takes his time walking to the tent opening, He goes outside, he looks carefully and notices the same soldiers arrayed around the edge of the village just outside in the gray. And he says, we're good. We are good. Don't be afraid, said Elisha. There are more troops on our side than on theirs. And then he prayed to the Lord, Lord, help my servant see. Open his eyes. And below them, On the hill, between them and the other army, was a host on fire. Now, shadowy figures with spears in the gloom are bad, but people on fire with swords, that's like the nuclear weapon of the ancient world. Like, we're good. We are good. They are not outnumbered and alone. Why? Because the presence of God had come to Dothan. God was with, God was with the servant and with Elisha. Now those heavenly troops were there all along, but the servant didn't know it. He thought they were safe in Dothan because the enemy wasn't there. They'd found this little place in the middle of nowhere, tucked away. They they, they found their refuge. He thought that's why they were safe. He thought they were safe because of the absence of an enemy. Elisha knew they were safe because of the presence of an army. It was here at Dothan that the presence of God became known for this servant. It became real. But note this. Note this. The pit brought out the presence. With the pit comes the presence. And with the presence there is possibility. You may forget everything else I say today. You might forget this too, but let me say this again because this is the sermon in a nutshell and worth the price of admission to this beautiful church. The fact is with the pit comes the presence and with the presence there is possibility. Last story. Again, one from church history. This involves Rome in the third century. Right around 255, 258 AD, things are bad. A number of things are going on. First of all, inflation is running rampant. 
we had a word earlier in, in the prayer meeting before someone said, uh, it was actually Heather, the children's pastor said that she was praying this morning and felt like God wanted to say something about inflation. Do you know you had a professional nerd looking at inflation tables from Rome in the third century yesterday F- for you? God blesses you with what you don't want probably, but let me tell you something. We've got, we've got inflation. They had inflation. Do you realize between between 245 and 255, inflation in Rome increased by 1,000%. That means, to put it in today's terms, imagine having in 2013 bought a loaf of bread for $2. Possible. Today, you'd pay $22 for that same bread. Now, you probably did pay $2 in 2013. I promise you it's not more than $4.50. That's inflation, but that's not break your back break culture inflation. A thousand percent inflation is nothing to sniff at. This was causing a tremendous amount of unease and instability with people. Second thing, politics is a mess. By the way, I'm not talking about America yet, but politics is a mess. It was troubled. Emperors keep getting assassinated between 235 and 284. 26 different people were acknowledged as emperor by the Roman Senate. That's instability. And as soon as they're announced emperor, they get knocked off and another one steps up. By the way, why? I'd I'd head out the other way. I'd go to Dothan, right? Like, why? (laughs) Don't go to Rome, man. What are you thinking? The point, though, is that people felt unstable, financially insecure. And by the way, let me hit home something real quick. In the church, I think we're guilty too often of, of uh, thinking it's only the spiritual that matters, as if there's something as physical over here and spiritual in another. I love the Vineyard Church in some ways because they talk about an overlapping not yet and now kingdom where the presence is right behind this curtain and here already. The fact is, inflation cripples. There are people in this room today who are struggling financially. And this isn't some abstract thing. This literally brings instability into other points of, of life. And if that's you, and if, if you came here today thinking, man, I'm going to church. What I really need to do is go work somewhere. I think God wants to say to you, he, he sees. And you're not the first. The table's been set, I think, today. The fact is, this was crippling. And what you're experiencing is crippling. That's no joke. Insecurity. Political instability. Oh, and by the way, a pandemic. They're actually coming out of a pandemic. Again, I'm not, no parallels. But they're coming out of a pandemic that was incredibly difficult. The plague of of Cyprian had gone through the empire. In some places, 50% of the people in cities were, were, were dead. It was contagious, and they didn't know anything about how plagues spread. They just knew that it was bad and scary. Families were being ripped apart because the only way they could preserve the rest of the family was to leave the sick one behind and get on down the road. Now, what they would do is they'd take a little bread, and by the way, that's $22 bread, and they'd put that bread with the sick person. They can't afford to leave much because it's $22 bread, and they leave it behind and say, we wish we could leave you two loaves because that would let you live a week. We can't. Good luck. Three days. We love you. We're so sorry. And they'd leave. No lie, this is happening throughout the Roman Empire. This was nasty stuff. At its height, 5,000 people a day died in Rome. 
In Alexandria, which is the second biggest city, not like our Alexandria up the road, the second biggest city in the empire, 62% of the population died of the plague in 10 years. And that's trouble. No wonder inflation went up too. You can't find workers. People felt disoriented. And this was the situation in 255. People felt insecure, unstable, and disoriented. Their leaders seemed unable to do anything. The gods they had devoted their lives to were powerless. And they couldn't even trust the money they'd earned with their own hands. They couldn't even trust that to buy the bread for their kids. The people of their own empire had questions for which there were no easy answers. So far we've talked about life in the pit. But we've talked about it for individuals. Joseph, Elisha's servant. What about cultures in the pit? What about cities in the pit? What about families in the pit? Ordinary people were asking deep questions and no one seemed to have meaningful answers. Except there was this group of people. In 255, the Roman Empire was comprised of 2% Christians. 2%. Nobody. They were nothing. People called them atheists because they wouldn't worship their gods. How funny is that? They thought they were cannibals. That communion stuff, now we've, we've made it the grip it and rip it. But, but the fact is, they were drinking wine and, and, uh, and bread, and, and people walking by thought, those people are crazy. They're drinking the blood of humans and the flesh of humans, because that's what they said they were doing. Right? They thought they were cannibals. These were outcasts. They were nothing. And yet, in the midst of great instability, even as they were persecuted, this tiny group of Jesus' followers pursued the presence of God. And as you know by now, if you are still awake or have been paying attention, with the presence comes possibility. Do you want to know why you're here today? It's because 2% of people stepped up. And while people were running away from family members, running away from the plague, Christians started running towards, period. That's why you're here. You have them to thank. You would not be in a church today had not those people gone to the pit and brought with them the presence of God. You see, when the pandemic hit a culture that was already insecure and unstable, and as members of, the, of, of families ran away, Christians ran towards Historians tell us that it was Christians who came and held these sick people's hands. And when their bread ran out, they shared their own at their cost. This is $22 bread. That's my main point. $22, I'm so cheap. I just can't get over the fact. $22 bread they're sharing. It cost them. This is not the stuff they put at Kroger from day-old stuff that I buy. This is $22 bread. This is the first fruits. It cost them. Now, churches today like to, and I'm not throwing stones, I love this church, but churches today like to talk about discipleship pathways and evangelism programs. But what I'm about to say is not an opinion, but backed up by historical data, and that is this. It was not the right words or clever programs that turned the Roman Empire to Christianity. It was this. When culture ran away, Christians ran towards. Come on. 
and it began to change the world. You see, in 255, 2% of the Roman Empire was Christian, but by 300, that number had skyrocketed to 11%. It actually doubled every decade after that. Why? Why? Well, in part, because people survived the plague because they, some people didn't starve. And so you've got people surviving who'd lost their families. And if you read the word carefully, the church is meant to be a family. And they found in their caretakers a new family. All of a sudden, as more and more people die, uh, some survive, there are more people in the church. And others see what these Christians are doing and think, man, this isn't just religion. This is the kind of thing that answers the questions of instability and unease and disorientation. This answers the questions of the culture. And they thought, yeah, I'm in for that. These people will share their bread. Financial instability, social and political unrest, recovery from a major pandemic, a world with a long list of questions for which there are no easy answers. This is what life looks like in the pit, my friends. In case you're wondering, I'm not talking about Rome anymore. Inflation. A bitterly divided political culture. People asking, and not in any kind of uh, ironic way, what does it mean to be human? That's, do you realize that I teach undergrads and, and seminary students? The number one question that I think our culture is asking is, do I matter? What's the point? And yet that's what we're dealing with. You realize that according to the Harvard pollster, John De La Volpe, nearly half of the members of Generation Z suffer from depression that requires clinical treatment. This is not lowercase d depression. This is capital D. The CDC, yeah, yeah, sure. It's, uh, it's uh, nearly half of the members of Gen Z suffer from the kind of depression that requires clinical treatment. By the way, Z would be uh, uh, folks born in the 90s and, and, and beyond. These are digital nomads or, or a digital generation. The CDC claims that suicide in Gen Zs is the second leading cause of death for them. Now, by the way, this is a 56% increase between 2007 and 2017. This is a tsunami of despair. The fruit of our culture is literally dying on the vine for lack of hope. If only we had a story to tell about life in the pit that leads to possibility. If only. Culture is asking the questions for which we have answers and we are sitting on our hands. You see, when the, with the pit comes the presence and with the presence, there's possibility. I've told you three stories this morning, all of them stories of the pit. As we move towards close, I want to make a few comments in terms of uh, regarding application. 
What does this mean for us? My sense is that God wants to do all kinds of things in the room. I'm not sure what. But two things in particular stand out to me. One is this. There's a group of people, I think, in the room for whom the pit is familiar. You know the pain of the pit. Right now, maybe you feel trapped. When I was talking about Joseph in the pit with bloody nails, you know exactly what I'm talking about, and you thought, that's me. Maybe you know what it's like to have a street address in Dothan. Maybe you know what it's like to walk out of your house in the morning and see the enemy surrounding you, staring you down. Now, this enemy might be disease. This enemy might be divorce. It might literally be people or spirits who have arrayed themselves against you. Maybe your enemy is depression or despair. The fruits of life without direction. A lack of meaning. Maybe all you know is that things feel kind of claustrophobic. You feel like the enemy is closing in. You can't name that enemy. Good news is you don't need to name the enemy. You need to name the, the father. We got his name. Now, if any of that hits home for you today, if any of that, I wonder this morning if God wants to bless you with fresh vision. If God might want to open your eyes to a reality you can't see. Or maybe it's simply that God wants to get down in the pit with you. Because with the pit comes the presence. The Bible says to, uh, about Joseph that, that God was with Joseph. Maybe he wants to be with you. Maybe you think you've been cursed because you're feeling the pit. Let me tell you something. You're not. You're closer to the Lord than you've ever been. He's right there. Maybe the pit is the gateway to possibility. And maybe the thing you've been missing is that you, as a child of God, travel with an army that outnumbers any enemy. How about that, right? What if, what if that were true? If only we had a story to tell. There's another group of folks in the room. Some of you might be in both groups, by the way. That's okay. There's no rules here. There's another group I think the Lord wants to deal with today. If you're in this group, I think you've been watching your friends sinking. You've been watching your neighborhoods sinking. You've been watching the culture around you sink. You've been watching churches sink. Let's get real about that. You've noticed a pronounced increase in hopelessness and discord and the collapse, really, of systems and structures you thought were steady. Inflation. Political instability. Recovery from a pandemic. Where are we headed? When I said that the world in 255 had questions that didn't have answers, you knew right what I was talking about. You know what it's like to live in the Dothan of culture, of the, the dothan of the now, communities we're in, families we're in. We have questions for which there are no easy answers. And yet, and yet, 
With the pit comes the presence. And with the presence, there is possibility. With the pit comes the presence. With the presence, there is possibility. So to you, though, uh, Nate, you want to, I don't know who's doing uh, response time, but um, we're going to move towards a time of response. To those of you who have been stirred up, to those of you who today want to face the reality that you're in Dothan or that you know people in Dothan or that you want to stand for people who are in Dothan, I think the Spirit is saying this, even as others run away, even as others run away, God is putting it into your heart to run towards. Eighteen hundred years ago, a group of Christians ran towards, and the fact that they did so allowed for you to be here today. There would be no church otherwise. Let it be said that 1,800 years from now, some professional nerd who gets up to talk at a a vineyard, hopefully, says there was a group of people dealing with inflation, dealing with political instability, dealing with the recovery from a pandemic, and they ran towards while others were running away. And the church of the living God grew. God has a place for you in this church, this church, by the way, for the sake of this culture. The pit we're in is obvious. I mean, this is a vineyard. We've encountered the presence even this morning. We are stewards of the presence. It's time for us to step into possibility. So uh, if the prayer, prayer ministry team could come forward, we're going we're gonna to spend uh, a little bit of time now um, in response. We've heard about Joseph. We've heard about Elisha's servant. We've heard about the early church. Again, if you are feeling the pit, this is a chance for you to come forward and have prayer, uh, to to, to feel the presence of God, to experience the presence, to encounter it. Because with the presence comes a possibility. And if you want to step in and intercede for a culture that's in the pit, for people around you who are in the pit, this is a chance to come forward and, be, and just, just answer the call. Let yourself be commissioned to be someone who runs towards. I'm going to pray and then just open that up. Father, we thank you. We bless you, Lord. Your kingdom come, Lord. Your will be done on earth as it is right here, right now in heaven. Lord. Let, it, let it be here. Let the wall between the two Come down, Father, and, and, and please, Father, deliver the gifts that, you've, that have been storing up for your people, even as they seek you, Father. We know what the pit is like, Lord. We ask for the presence, Lord, and we ask for the presence, Lord, not for our possibility, Lord, but for the sake of the blessing that can come through us, Lord. Let us be a part. Give us meaning in you. Let your word return full, Father. Amen. Let's stand. If you'd like someone to pray for you, please come forward. We've got the prayer team up here. If you just need to spend some time in God's presence, you're welcome in your seat or kneeling in the front. I know Jason would be happy to pray for anyone who's um, feel touched by that message. So I just want to thank you for coming this morning and bless you as you go with the love and the power of God into the world. Amen.